Where are our heroes, martyrs, and monuments? Where are the medals that symbolize their triumph? Where are the accolades for their gallant deeds and acts of courage? Where are our poppies for those brave souls who sacrificed their lives yet earned nothing, not even respect? Where are the black heroes who braved their all and died for causes unknown? Where are our Oscars for those who star in the daily struggle for survival? They die and decay unrecognized, their claim to frame brutally denied, their presence and existence is unacknowledged, death-defying deeds go unnoticed, living sacrifices remain unseen, soaring thoughts remain unspoken. Where are these accolades for our children to inherit? We are the living monument of the uprooted peoples traveling on the road to eternal Africa. Our blood is the blood of the warriors. Our body is the body of countless heroes who fought in the name of freedom and humanity. It is time we let the world know we are proud of our heritage and we stand as living monuments. For those who are afraid of who they must be are but slaves in a trance. Yes, you singers of songs and players of music, writers of verse, tellers of story, these are the people whose praise you should sing to celebrate our heroes' days and proud ways. For who else will make a claim or will sing our name? Where are our monuments by Len Garrison? Lenford Quezzy Garrison, known as Len Garrison, was an educationalist, community activist, poet and photographer whose life was dedicated to the advancement of Afro-Caribbean people in Britain. He was born in 1943 in St. Thomas, Jamaica, and moved to London in the 1950s. Incredibly active in voluntary and community work throughout his life, Garrison played a pivotal role in Black British history and heritage, most notably through co-founding the Black Cultural Archives in 1980. One of the principal aims of founding a Black Cultural Archive in Britain was the need for personal, private, and public reconstruction of the Black British identity. Influenced by the 1960s movement for change in North America, as well as escalating racial tensions in Britain and the absence of black history in mainstream British education, Len recognized the importance of creating an initiative dedicated to the documentation of African and African-descended people's contribution to world heritage. The Black Cultural Archives was to serve as a site of remembering traditions, redressing the dispossession of African and African-descended people's claims to their own historic heritage, and reclaiming destroyed African legacies. Garrison recognized, particularly amongst Black British youth, a sense of alienation and feelings of non-belonging, which stemmed from racism and general disillusionment. He was driven by his belief in the potential of young black people in Britain and sought to bring evidence together of the black contribution to the British past in order to provide a space that would inspire and uplift individuals, communities and society. In Len's own words, without knowledge of our history, we cannot make sense of the present nor make decisions to influence the future. Many African and Afro-Caribbean people growing up in Britain were deprived of access to historical knowledge, documentary evidence of black material culture, and opportunities to engage with the richness of African people's diaspora in history. Although the black presence in Britain reaches back over a thousand years, Len Garrison noticed mainstream British history's failure or refusal to document or study these histories adequately. He questioned how this erasure was impacting young black people's self-image and sought to challenge the status quo. The Black Cultural Archives, Len Garrison's creation, synthesized the black British identity by drawing from three main sources. First, African historical heritage. Second, African Caribbean invented and evolved cultural history. And third, black British countercultural history. 
Len Garrison wanted young black people to gain a sense of direction as well as draw strength from their cultural heritage. Len was also the co-founder and director of Afro-Caribbean Education Resource Project, an independent educational charity researching, developing, resourcing, and producing learning materials that drew on the black experience. Through ASA, Len published works such as Black Youth Rastafarianism and The Identity Crisis in Britain, which he presented as Britain's representative at the Festival of Arts and Culture in Benin in 1977. Len Garrison also contributed towards establishing the Black Youth Penmanship Award Scheme in 1978, which enabled young Black people to be celebrated for their literary achievements. Garrison's contributions to British history were driven by his belief in the wealth of talent and potential of young Black people in Britain, as well as the need for anti-racist education. He died in 2003, leaving behind a legacy that generations of people in Britain continue to be enriched by. Len Garrison and countless others of his peers pioneered developments in heritage, education, community and art that we all continue to reap the fruits of. Today, the Black Cultural Archives are now housed on Windrush Square with a mission to collect, preserve and celebrate the histories of people of Afro and Caribbean descent in the UK. The BCA runs a series of gallery exhibitions, educational programs and public engagement events, as well as providing free access to their archives, museum objects and reference library. Initially founded to enable the historic past and accomplishments of African and Caribbean descended peoples to be better appreciated in the mainstream in Britain, the Black Cultural Archives has become the leading heritage voice for the Windrush generation. Keeping with the theme of keeping Black people's histories alive is archaeologist, food historian, and University of Glasgow lecturer, Dr. Peggy Brunash, who teaches in slavery studies and slave cuisine, exploring the ways our ancestors kept their resistance and culture alive during the past, and explaining the way she's changed the industry from its historically Eurocentric worldview. Welcome back to the How Did I Get Here podcast brought to you by Black Cultural Archives, where we delve into the journeys behind the success stories of those in the arts and heritage sector to give you better insight into how to step into these careers. I'm your host, Bintiad, and in this episode, we explore the heritage sector with Dr. Peggy Brunash, archaeologist and university lecturer. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself for the, for the guests because you wear many hats and I don't want to leave any of them off. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you. Uh, I do wear many hats for the reason of uh, a saying that I heard a long time ago, which is, if you're going to live from hand to mouth, you better be ambidextrous. Mm. So yes, I, I am a historian. I am an archaeologist. I I'm also a university lecturer. I do create and deliver uh, consumption-based history activities. I do a lot of um, work with television, TV production companies as a talking head, as a mm -hmm. consultant. I work as a consultant with music, food, science, uh, cultural festivals, even here in London, in fact. Uh, I, I do quite a bit. Mm, yeah. yeah, this is why I needed you to do the introduction <laughs> for yourself. Yes. That's incredible. So as I said, you wear many hats. We're going to get to all of them throughout the course of this episode. But I wanted to start first with history. Um, how did your interest in history first come about? And how did you cultivate a career in history? Wow, 
how did I become interested in history? So my family is from the Caribbean, but specifically mm. from Haiti. Mm. And so growing up in a multicultural place like Miami, you had many different people coming from the Caribbean, but also Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, other parts of Latin America, as well as the Black or African-American communities there. And one of the things that, you know, we get to that month of February mm -hmm. in the United States, that those 28 days <laughs> of torture porn um, and, you know, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, right? There's mm -hmm. only a couple of heroes, mm -hmm. like three. MLK, if you look MLK. <laughs> Because you can't put Malcolm X in that because mm -hmm. he's he's too scary for most white people. <laughs> but when we would get to that month, usually it was generally broached as African-Americans are once enslaved and then they worked, mm -hmm. right, with a couple of uh, historical actors in between. Mm -hmm. But at growing up Haitian, or rather Haitian-American, we always had the, we freed ourselves. It wasn't mm -hmm. given to us. We took it. Mm -hmm. And then... Of course, the quick backlash is, but where are you guys now? Yeah. So wanting to be able to talk about more than just, we freed ourselves, mm. but not having an understanding as to, but why are we in such dire straits politically yeah. in in the world now? Mm. Wanting my, my fellow friends who are African-American being able to talk about their history beyond we were enslaved and then they freed us mm -hmm. was too important to me. That's, I, I guess, where it started, that there were just too many holes. Yeah. And it couldn't just be this negative thing. Mm. Because despite that, why are we still living pretty well in terms of generating happiness? Yeah. It didn't, it, I felt like there was a disconnect between what white narratives were saying that mm. we should be versus yeah. what I saw my community, generally other black communities doing. It, it mm. felt like, should, shouldn't we be sadder yeah. or more depressed? There was something that wasn't, there was, some, mm. there was something not being talked about, a kind of resistance, not just resilience, mm. but a, a kind of resistance that I wanted to explore. I didn't have the language for it then. Mm. I felt this disconnect, you know, when we had to watch Roots and had to feel horrible about it. But I always saw so much black joy mm. that was disconnected from the dominant narrative. And so I wanted to understand what's going on in yeah. between. Why it's not matching up. Yeah. And so how did you then go about taking that thirst for knowledge and like uh, a desire to fill in the gaps to then becoming a historian? I didn't start out to become a historian. I started out as a, an archeologist. Mm. So when I was at uni at University of Florida, um, I knew, okay, so originally I wanted to be a screenwriter, but then <laughs> my parents shot that, that idea down. I'm not going to Hollywood. <laughs> and so while I was rethinking what career path, I really started getting interested in anthropology and history mm. and all of that and thought archaeology sounds mad cool. Mm. All right. So I got a part-time job working in a museum. I was working on an exhibition and I was holding an iron bar that had been um, um, cons conserved, right? Shiny, heavy, rectangular, about that long. Mm. And I 
was talking to the curator. I was like, what is this? And she said, that bought African slaves. Mm. And I was like, uh, wh- what? Mm-hmm. She said, that was currency to buy people, your ancestors. That hit me like a punch in yeah. the gut that mm-hmm. I was physically holding currency. Mm-hmm. And my next question was, how? How many people could be bought with this? Mm. And she said, with something like that, probably with two more, um, a couple of adult men or maybe four women. It still hits me Mm. the same way. I can't even, I have to take a beat between that. I'm I'm holding a history that negatively impacted my people. Mm -hmm. What am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. What is what's the rest of the story on that? So that's what started it. Mm. I was like, I I need to know more because that's not written about in the history books, or at least it wasn't. Mm. I needed to know more, and archaeology was going to be that way. That's what I thought, and still believe archaeology was that path to a counter archive mm. that wasn't there, and therefore transmitted into history books. Wow. That is, that hits deep. I was at Gori Island in Senegal mm-hmm. literally a few days ago and we was, the tour guide was telling us about how um, people were traded for things as little as a necklace. And, you know, we saw the, um, we went to the House of Slaves and we saw the rooms that they stayed in in the prisons and mm-hmm. just how they were kept. And like, as much as it happened a long time ago, that there's some things that are never not going to hit, you know, and that you're not going to feel empathy about. Right. Um, and that's one of them. So going on to kind of your archaeological route, first of all, we were speaking about this earlier. We have never come across a black woman archaeologist. So Mm. I feel like you're living out every little black girl's dream. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about how we wanted to be archaeologists when we were kids and then the the dream just died out. So like, I know we'll get to why (laughs) or how can it not die out for others um, because we are working on that. Mm. Tell us. At the time that I started doing archaeology, uh, I didn't see others like me, mm. but I was one of those, I was a weird kid. Like you <laughs> couldn't tell me nothing. If this is what I wanted to do, I'm doing it. So I don't care. Um, but there are no other black people doing it. I don't care. I'm just doing it. I didn't have that mm. uh, reservation. I don't want to say fear. I just didn't have that reservation. Yeah. Um, and then when I started going to some conferences, I met a couple, a couple, of, and they were all women. Mm. And we had all this in common. I was like, yeah, okay, this is cool, mm-hmm. right? Um, still not wrapping my head around how significant it was and still is mm. to encounter others who are doing the same thing yeah. as you do that look like you do mm-hmm. when the vast majority don't. It, it hit me when I decided to stop doing uh, what we call contract archaeology, and decided to go and get some advanced degrees. Mm. Like my master's and PhD was on a site. Everybody with me is white. Mm. These are my 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 coworkers, and whatnot. And I just happened to say, I've made my decision. I'm going to go get my master's. I'm going to leave this job mm. and get my master's. And they were like, Oh, and what? And I said, I want to do, um, you know, African diaspora archaeology. Mm. And a co and a coworker, a white woman, said, You can't do that. And I said, mm-hmm. why not? She said, because that's racist. <laughs> and I said, it's racist for me to go and study black people's history. And she said, well, I'm Irish. What if I go and, and, and start digging in Ireland? Do that then. 
I said the same thing, but uh, more there was there was a knife behind my, <laughs> you know, there there, were, there was profanity mm-hmm. in it too, which pretty much meant let's do this then, let's fight about this. Like yeah. I was ready to physically fight. We had to be separated, that kind of thing, because mm. you you're you're gonna tell me I can't do this because I'm black, and that's at the time still not understanding the words that would come later mm-hmm. that this was a demonstration an example of why archaeology was born out of empire. Mm. The fact that nobody questions in the world, these British archaeologists or these American archaeologists are going to go to Africa and dig Mm. or go to uh, uh, Iran Mm. or China. No one questions that. Imagine a bunch of of, uh, Nigerian archaeologists coming to, oh, say, you know, Stonehenge Mm. and say, we're going to dig up Stonehenge Mm. and tell you about your people. It would never be allowed. Everyone knows this implicitly. Why? Why do we know this implicitly? Mm. Because that is the power of empire. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this woman was telling me that I can't go and study my own people. That's the power of empire too. It's the power of empire, Mm. right? The systemic racism that is so deeply embedded that we don't question it. Mm. So once again, I'm that kind of person like, bet, I'm going. I'm, do- <laughs> I'm doing this. And when I got to, to graduate school, to post-grad, um, I, f- I started to find my own people. Mm. But I had some hard lessons along the way, too. I can imagine. Yeah. What was, um, what was it like looking and exploring parts of Black history through an archaeological lens that as you said, has been shaped by empire and so is implicitly also a colonial lens. And like, how have you navigated being able to to do the work that you do and also kind of being mindful in stepping away from the colonial lens, which is intertwined with the kind of practice that you're, that you're doing? Uh, thankfully, there were enough Black archaeologists that were also friends mm. that we would have these conversations a lot. And we realized we needed to create our own theory and methodology to do that. Mm. And not realizing it, um, and one of my good friends who was my flatmate for, for a time, Dr. Whitney Battle Baptiste, uh, would go on to write the seminal book called Black Feminist Archaeology. Jeez. And knowing that we needed to be able to create a theory and practice that takes or at least minimizes that European lens that Mm. we were all forced to grow up in and see it through a black and as women, Mm. black feminist lens, one that has the intersectionality of understanding the role of particularly enslaved women as at the very bottom of the of colonial society because mm. at the very top are men of wealth. Yeah. Then just, you know, men. And by men of wealth and men, I'm talking white. Mm. And then women. But even poor white men in a certain way are, are at times mm. above wealthy women just at having the ability to vote, for yeah. example. Then um 
maybe a free biracial people that we call people of color at the time. It was mulatto or whatever yeah. weird terminology that they had to put on it because everything had to be very fixed and divide. fine. Right, divide. And then, so free people of color, and that was distinguished by colorism too, mm-hmm. right? Being a free black person of dark skin was a bit lower than being a free biracial person. Mm-hmm. And then below that would be the at the bottom, the enslaved population. Mm-hmm. But enslaved black men had greater value than enslaved black women. Mm-hmm. They were at the very bottom. Even though with black women, you got two for one. Yeah. And what I mean by that is as an enslaved woman, that woman is a producer mm-hmm. in the sense of she is cutting the cane, she is, you know, taking care of, of, of harvesting the tobacco or whatever, but she's also producing more slave labor mm-hmm. by the children that she gives birth to. Mm-hmm. So she's creating free slave labor for that slaver mm-hmm. who owns her legally, mm-hmm. but she's also a producer as a worker. Mm. And, and there's yet, also the sexual kind of exploitative element of that as well. Oh yeah, that's, that's a bonus. Mm-mm-mm. That's, that's your bonus. But the fact that enslaved women were two for one, that they physically were doing labor, Mm. but were also creating free labor and yet still valued less than men, right? So there's a Mm -hmm. patriarchy. There is a a white lens to it, right? And all of that is interfering with how one should be thinking about the value, the contributions of enslaved people. And we had to find ways to remove that. The archive of slavery is highly problematic because it's written by the victors. It's written by white people. And at best, it marginalizes the existence Mm -hmm. of black people as dynamic individuals. And at worst, erases them all Mm -hmm. altogether. The United States loves to promote how much it built itself and and it became so this and that. That was black people that built that country, Mm -hmm. but that's been erased Mm. or they keep trying to erase it. Mm -hmm. So having to find ways to look at either the archive of slavery through a black feminist lens to read against the grain and hear the voices that have been muted. Mm is part of the work, or use what we call, some of us call counter archives. What was created, manipulated, modified, or left by enslaved people. Mm. And that's the archaeology that I do. Wow. That (laughs) sounds like a job in and of itself. And then obviously having to actually do the job part of the archaeology. Yes. Yes. Working twice as hard. So you've now done um, archaeological pro- archaeological projects in Benin, Guadeloupe, across the U.S. Mm-hmm. In 2016, um, you were awarded a fellowship to do an excavation of the first integrated school in Ohio. Um, what was the experience of exploring these sites with, I assume, white counterparts? How, what was that like in terms of you obviously would have had... Uh, emotional you know ancestral connection to these sites that you're visiting um and working with colleagues that have none what how how did that go and how do you feel like 
moving forward it could be improved if any improvements are needed? I didn't understand at the time what we call secondary trauma. Mm. It was hard to work with some white people, because not every white archaeologist is like this, that works in, in on diasporic studies. Mm -hmm. um, but some, it was hard to see them disrespecting a ritual site mm. for no reason, just to grab at the, the booty, mm. at, at the the broken pottery shirts that was laid down for a purpose, mm. for a religious purpose, for somebody's passing. Mm -hmm. If we had to remove it, that's one thing. Mm. What we, what I saw was not necessary. Let it be. If it washes into the ocean, it washes into the ocean. Yeah. If we don't have to disturb it, mm -hmm. nature will take care of it. Mm. There were other times when working with There is, a, there is an emotional trauma that happens to come up when you are physically on these sites. Mm. When you f recover a branding iron with a slaver's initials on it, mm. I saw that it hit me and other black archaeologists differently than it hit some white mm -hmm. archaeologists. And it was not anything I could share with them. Mm-hmm. And those of us that were black had to find ways to get through that uncomfortableness. Yeah. Being black, I know that you can understand. Sometimes you have to make like make some really raw, off-putting jokes mm. just to laugh so you don't cry. Mm -hmm. And we had to do that mm -hmm. from time to time. Um, and I know it made some of my white partners, colleagues, uh, uncomfortable because yeah. they were like, they're laughing, but should we be laughing? I don't know what to do. Um, it was a powerful thing to physically touch the artifacts, the material culture mm. of people long gone, to actually stand in the space that was a slave hut near other slave huts and understand how close they were. Therefore, if this man or that child or that woman was suffering from being whipped mm. for hours. Everybody could hear it, right? There's what you understand in the theoretical sense, but when you're standing in that space, something else happens. Mm. And yet there was that disconnect for so many white archaeologists. Does that make them necessarily problematic or racist? I wouldn't say so. But at the same time, I did see some racist things. I did have some racist things actually happen to me mm. by archaeologists who I thought were on the right side of history. That is so disappointing. It must have been such an uncomfortable experience to have to work through. I think especially considering the colonial background of archaeology, when working as a white archaeologist, you're treading the line of playing into the exotification and fetishize, I can never say this word. Fetishization. 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 There we go. Okay. The fetishization Ooh. that was so um, prominent in empire and still prominent very when, much when, when we're speaking about um, black history or black, the diaspora, generally speaking. Um, and it's really, it's a shame to hear that that line has been crossed in your experience. Um, 
as an archaeologist? Oh, not just that. There have been cases where the performance of colonialism happens again in the sense of I am the first white mm. archaeologist that is studying this kind of black culture on this site or this region. Mm. None of y'all can come near it. I plant my flag here first. Mm. And if you want to dig here too, you want to research here too, you got to go through me. Mm. I went through that too. Jeez. And I was like, wow, okay. And you just like, you really don't see what you're doing right now. Like, it's crazy. No, I think they knew. They just didn't care. Well, they're white and they have the power, mm. right? There wasn't anyone to smack them mm. on the hand and say no. Oh, there need to be more vetting processes when choosing certain areas of study, I think. Um, so you're now the director of the Beniba Center for Slavery Studies at the University of Glasgow. Um, massive congratulations. It's a huge achievement. Thank you. What has it been like? You're also a, uni a university lecturer at the University of Glasgow. Yeah. Um, so what has it, the experience of teaching um, this history mm -hmm. in one of the foremost colonial powers been like for you? Um, both as an educator, but also in your experience dealing with other educators. Mm -hmm. And um, we speak about it often that the UK has a huge problem with white teachers teaching black history and black content. Yeah, we're working um, on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's happening slowly, slowly. So what, what's it been like for you? Um, how has your experience been? I have to say, when I uh, was hired in 2019, right, in mm -hmm. the autumn of 2019, which you understand is right before the resurgence mm -hmm. of Black Lives Matter. Um, two years prior, University of Glasgow was on the cutting edge of already saying, we need to look into our historic relationship mm -hmm. with slavery. Mm -hmm. They created a committee a grass with grassroots uh, activists part of it, uh, Black politicians part of it, mm -hmm. as well as scholars and, you know, had researchers figure out how much money did the university make mm. off of this, off of slavery? Wow. How connected are they? Okay, that gets figured out, and they realize that should not be the end. The next thing has to be about reparative justice. Mm. What do we do as a university, as an institution, to give back and help break systemic racism, mm. bring about racial equity in all forms, particularly in education. What do we need? What are all these things we need to do? We need to create a, we need to create MOUs, um, you know, memorandum of understanding with University of West Indies. Mm. That was done. Need to create a center for slavery studies. Mm. Do that. Need to do all these things, right? Positive steps in addressing all the issues associated with the marginalization, subjugation, mm. uh, state-sanctioned violence. That, of course, all of this led to the financial benefit of the university, also the UK, mm. but negatively impacted particularly Caribbean societies mm. still. Mm. So me coming into very forward-thinking uh, situation before 2020, mm. right? They started doing this 2017, 2018, before I even get hired. Mm. So already 
that's a positive step as opposed to a reactive mm. imagining of activism. Yeah. Because, oh, oh, okay, well, everyone's talking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and and we, yeah, decolonize the environment. Let's take down <laughs> these statues. Let's rename these streets. Okay. Ooh, I'm glad that was over. <laughs> Almost caught us. <laughs> right? It can't be about true activism, true change, radical change mm-hmm. is not a reactive process. It has to be active. We need mm-hmm. to constantly be thinking about how to make these changes, how to break these processes. Because the one thing that I always try to demonstrate to my students is the structures of racism is a living machine. Mm-hmm. It is not static. It is living because it is always working to perfect itself. Mm-hmm. The moment you get one th- one law changed or one situation broken for the betterment of people of color, mm. the system reworks itself to keep it from happening again. Jeez. Perfect example, language. Mm. Remember when woke came into the into the language? Mm-hmm. Now, how is it used? It's a negative term. Mm. It is a living machine mm. always working to perfect itself. So... Being able to work with colleagues who understand this mm. and know they don't have all the answers mm. and are willing to not necessarily throw all the work to a black colleague, but are willing to stop and say, what do we do? What are your thoughts on it? How mm. should we proceed? What is it that we need to do? Listening to me and others like me. Turning to grassroots organizations, all of this has been great. For example, mm-hmm. the, the, the center. Mm-hmm. I said the center before it had a name and they wanted me to be the director. I was like, well, first things first, it's got to be named after somebody who was enslaved. Yeah. We need, those are the names we need mm-hmm. to speak back into existence. Mm-hmm. So I said, we're going to name it after a woman who was owned by Someone who used to work for the university way back in the day. Wow. And that's why we named it the Beneva Center. So that you can, you know, that's not a yeah. English proper <laughs> name. So even reactivating mm-hmm. the existence long past by saying their name yeah. is important. It's not the end all be all. Mm. It's just one of the millions of steps we need to keep taking. So I've been very fortunate that I have colleagues that said, yep, Mm -hmm. okay, what next? What should we be doing? They will offer their ideas. I will offer my ideas. We come together. I am not expected to be the person with all the answers. Mm -hmm. But when I have my suggestions, they are validated. They're accepted. And we move forward. Amazing. That's incredible to hear that the University of Glasgow has taken all of those steps, even prior to Black Lives Matter. Um, I don't think there are many other universities in the UK that have taken such steps yet. And if they did, it probably started more around the Black Lives Matter time as a reaction. It did. um, Which kind of implies this performative kind of... And reactive, right? Reactive, reactiveness to it. Um, And speaking of kind of teaching in the wider UK, so... There's quite an amalgamation 
made just in the general public between US black history and mm -hmm. black British history or the history of other diasporas. And so here in the UK, a lot of people know more about US black history um, than they do about their own history, whether that be British history or from any other diaspora across the world, I'm, I'm included in that. Um, and I think that the UK has used that as an opportunity to distance themselves from one, the colonial exploits and also their role in slavery. Um, so it's a very common argument to hear people in this country say that the UK was one of the first countries. They'll say the they'll say the UK was the first country to abolish slavery, which obviously isn't true. Um, forgetting Haiti, but there has been a huge kind of distance placed between the UK and their role in Absolutely. the African diaspora. Absolutely. And it's very interesting as to what is the emphasis? Mm. Where do they place the emphasis in the whole story of slavery? And is, as you say, it's on abolition mm -hmm. rather than y'all got in it because you wanted to make money. Mm -hmm. So I can't celebrate you for ending slavery mm -hmm. when you jumped into it in the first place mm -hmm. to make money off the, the labor and death of black people. Mm -hmm. No, we're not doing it that way. Mm. And as you say, one of the worst things, it's a second kind of violence. The original violence was slavery. Mm -hmm. The second violence was choosing to forget mm. what they did and only celebrating and remembering, commemorating mm -hmm. The, you know, the bicentennial of the abolitionist, like, let's talk about why you got in it in the mm -hmm. first place, which, as we all know, or probably should know, the UK has still not made a formal apology for it. Mm -mm. Because if you start with an apology, then you got to make do, you got to make something right. You have to acknowledge your role before anything. Acknowledge your role mm -hmm. and then make something right. Mm. And all, and because slavery was about money then making it right is going to be about reparations. Exactly. People aren't ready for that. Mm -mm. So it, 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 that is something I, I fight a lot is you cannot want to pat yourself on the back mm. for abolishing a system you created mm -hmm. to benefit you that still benefits you mm -hmm. and is still part of systemic structures that negatively impacts black bodies. Yeah. And in Scotland in particular, the I don't know how much you know this, in Scotland, it's always been like, oh no, we weren't part of that. Mm -hmm. That was that was Liverpool, that was Bristol, that was London, mm -hmm. forgetting that Glasgow, Glasgow's nickname was the second city of the empire. Really? Second, after London, mm. not Liverpool, mm -hmm. not Bristol, mm. Glasgow. So if it was happening here, it was happening in Glasgow. Of course it was happening mm. in Glasgow. Glasgow made a ton of money. You walk down Glasgow streets in the city center that they call Merchant City, mm. Merchant. What, what were, what were the, what was it that they what were the trading? Goods? What were the goods? Mm. It's not surprising to someone like me. To say, you know, we're standing on Jamaica Street. Mm. You know, Virginia Street is around the corner. Why? Mm. Why? Why is this called Jamaica Street? Why is that Virginia Street, Tobago Bridge? Jeez. 
right? But they want to forget. And mm-hmm. so we've been working to, to change that. It is not the fault of the common British citizen that they don't know about their connection. I lay that blame solely on historians mm-hmm. because who has access to the archives? Mm-hmm. Historians. So if historians aren't writing about it, those books aren't getting into the schools and the teachers yeah. aren't teaching the kids. Mm-hmm. It's not the fault of the average British citizen. Mm. Before social media and anybody could go and do what they want and 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 the democratization of knowledge. Yeah. Right? We st- academia is still the gatekeepers mm. of knowledge production. And interestingly enough, there have been historians when when people put them to task like why haven't you written? You've spent decades writing about how great Glasgow has been, how rich Mm. the country became. You talked about merchants, the tobacco lords, the sugar barons, Mm. but never once once mentioned slavery? How? And their response is uh, historical amnesia. And that's when I am about to start popping off. (laughs) One of the most, this is here, and this is another example of how Mm. it's a living Breathing machine. Machine. Mm. What's amnesia? Uh, it's, a, it's a memory disorder. It's, it's not. It's not a choice. <laughs> Say it again. It's not a choice. It's not your fault. Mm. It's not your fault mm. that you, as a historian, and therefore the whole nation, mm. doesn't know about its role mm. in slavery. It's not your fault. So, so is it ours, the descendants of slaves? Mm. It's our fault. Is it, mm. or is it your fault? So you don't even own that your ancestors did this. Mm. And as you as historian have chosen not to privilege the retelling of that truth. Mm. And you go, historical amnesia. Historical amnesia. That is why I call it a second violence. Mm. We all know with, with psychology, studies of assault and violence that that is bad enough but when you don't get to talk through it Mm. when you don't get to acknowledge it it's even worse Mm -hmm. and that's where we've been i think adding to that is the layer of like passivity that's implied in saying historical amnesia of course that it wasn't us it happened our brains just deteriorated over time but that's the living machine Mm. working to therefore pass the buck Mm -hmm. And well, you know what? We don't know. So let's just, let's move on. Mm. It's not, it's not us. Therefore, it is not the country. Yeah. It is not the powers that be that are still replicating these issues. Mm. But it's a, it's a continue, it's a generational thing as well, because the knowledge is still out there. To, like if you have that knowledge, then a white person can have that knowledge. So it's this historical amnesia is being perpetuated to this day, right? We are changing that. Mm. We are changing that in multiple ways, not just in terms of what we're writing and publishing, mm-hmm. but in terms of public history mm. and engaging more people outside of... You are still in a privileged position if you can go to uni. Yeah. Right? So we are trying to push this in spaces mm. where it, you aren't... You don't have to be at uni mm-hmm. to to learn about this. We are putting it, we are working, at least in Scotland, working with primary and secondary teachers Amazing. who are predominantly white and are helping them learn how to teach mm. about 
the slave trade and Atlantic slavery yeah. to school kids. Mm. Yeah, because we were speaking just before the recording started about how when we're taught about the slave trade, which is rare enough in and of itself that we that we get taught about it. But when we are, it's more from a, I suppose, moral principled perspective that black people were sold and they became enslaved and then they were no longer enslaved because nice, friendly white people decided to stop the slave trade. But we never get taught about the economic aspect of it and the perpetuity of the economic um, benefits. benefits of slavery that are still circulating in our economy today that we've we've all held money in our hands that has come from slavery at one point or another. Um, so how do you feel that moving forward the curriculum both at high school, school, but also university level is going to change to reshape the way that we view the slave trade and that we understand slavery? I can't speak for others, but I can certainly speak for for myself. One is that uh, the history of Atlantic slavery, transatlantic slave trade, is not black history. Mm. That's British history. Mm. Black history is British history. Mm-hmm. Because we're here because you were there, mm-hmm. white people. It's your history. Mm-hmm. So that is important. Um, when I first started teaching it here in the UK at the University of Glasgow, the pre- most of my students are white, 98% of them. Wow. Okay. Right. Which used to make me a little nervous, but they're the ones that need to know. Yeah. They're the ones that it's need. It's their history, too. Right. It's their history. Mm. Not even two. It's their history. <laughs> it's their history. Mm. Just as much as uh, Robert the Bruce and the clearances, mm-hmm. all of that. It's their history. Full stop. Mm. It, it Because of the democratization of knowledge production, especially through social media, and we all know the flip side is the perpetuation or generation of misinformation, mm. um, you know, we are certainly making sure right alongside just young activists through their means that this is a work that always has to happen. Yeah. It can't just be the trend. It always has to happen. Mm. And we are hopefully trying to learn from each other in various ways, whether it's through um, what we teach at uni, mm. what we're putting out on social media, public history projects, um, and reshaping how we understand the past beyond passivity mm-hmm. and violence mm. and bondage. Um, that a lot of the work that I do is on foodways, black foodways, mm. as a form of culinary resistance. But not just that, like, made us happy Mm. it it connected us right it is one of the few things that came out of slavery we still hold on to a lot of the food particularly from the caribbean Mm. and and the american south you know was slave cuisine Mm -hmm. right even me saying the term slave cuisine throws some people off they're like you can't put the word slave and cuisine next to each other. So then I say, we got to unpack that because they're doing it through uh, a, a European or, or white lens. Why can't I say slave cuisine? Tell me why it's not cuisine because mm. I'm going to tell you exactly why it is. Exactly. And you will agree with me by the end. Mm-hmm. By your own rules. Mm-hmm. So 
being able to find a multitude of ways to change not only what we're teaching, but how we're teaching, how we understand that past beyond just an inherited history of violence and trauma Mm. that we did, man, we raged, Mm. we raged. We were, we weren't just resilient. We didn't just survive. We thrived in various ways. We created music. We created vibrant food that we still eat Mm. and love. That there was black joy during such a horrific time. Being able to talk about those things, which is something that traditionally has never been talked about. Mm. Black joy during slavery. Huh? What? Mm -hmm. Is powerful. And if it can, be understood that it happened then, then that means whatever our fight is now that we're still fighting for equality, equity more so than equality. We still find time for joy. That Mm -hmm. was that missing thing I was telling you about earlier. Mm -hmm. I was like, but we, you know, we aren't like, oh, thank you, white, thank you, white person. Thank you, white country for, Mm -hmm. for changing things. So there are all these dynamic ways that we can under, understand our past mm-hmm. beyond the traditional narrative that, for the most part, isn't mm. taught properly or even at all. Mm. That's in, What you say about Black Joy is so important, and I think it doesn't get nearly enough, if any, recognition that I think the reason that Black people throughout generations and across the diaspora have had so much resilience is our ability to find pockets of joy no matter the hardship that we're going through. And it's not it's not the white man's tools that have enabled us to be here today. It's our ability to find it's joy us. and strive. It's us. It's us. It comes we from did this. Us. We mm. are here because we did it mm. for us. Mm. And that's why, so we started a festival with the Lyric Hammersmith Theater last year called um, Celebrations of Blackness. It's mm. We call it For the Culture, Celebrations of Blackness. Mm. And, and part of that ideology is that black joy is resistance mm. because we know that there is systemic racism constantly trying to upend us mm. at all times. And yet we can still find joy. Mm-hmm. That, that is resistance. It is radical. It is radical. It's very radical. It's radical healing. It's radical resistance. Yeah. And it persists through generations. Yeah. It never it never fades. Even, you know, our generations today, the struggles that we face, we're always able to find time Exactly. Joy. Exactly. And that's the kind of history I like teaching. Mm-hmm. That, yes, all these things did happen. All these horrific ways that we were tortured and raped and assaulted and, and our labors taken from us and were not paid, our children, all mm. of this. And despite all of that, we still danced. Mm-hmm. We still made music. Still we still ate good. Ate good. We ate good. <laughs> With what little mm-hmm. they gave us, we mm. still, we, we have been so incredibly talented, creative, mm-hmm. resilient. It, I, I'm just, dang, black people are mm. amazing. I mm-hmm. just, if anything, despite how hard it is learning just how twisted yeah. this history is, I am also just energized by how much we did what? Mm-hmm. We survived what? Mm-hmm. 
It just blows me. Yeah. So when I have my daily challenges or monthly Mm. challenges, I think about our ancestors. Mm. That's what gets me through it. I'm like, look, they got us here. Mm I'm going to get us there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're alone. I know I personally think about my ancestors a lot. And I think that many, many, many black people do and pull strength from that exactly and that's special i don't think many other people can can claim that they're able to do that that's what i know white people certainly don't look to their ancestors i i, I don't think however many <laughs> I, maybe they do maybe that's what's going to happen on yeah i mean saturday i don't know each, each I, i'm not interested back, in that yeah. i just know <laughs> stay inside <laughs> i draw strength mm. from what our ancestors were able to not just survive but overcome Mm. right Mm. because resilience is not synonymous with resistance Mm -hmm. it was survival but we didn't just survive we found ways to thrive Mm. we found ways thrive we did and still are finding ways Mm -hmm. still Mm. it's um it's remarkable the 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 connection that you've made between food and history so you're a food historian which is a really cool title to have anyways. Um. <laughs> Just allows me to eat Mm-mm. a lot. And I, I have to go do some research at this yeah. restaurant. Sorry, I'm a food historian. I need to, I, I need to under, food. Yeah, I need to understand. <laughs> so you're a food historian. Um, you're a cu- culinary consultant for um, Perth, Scotland's Southern Fried Music Festival. You work with several food festivals across the UK and have lended your expertise to radio shows, TV productions, all the likes. Um on the history of food. So what for you is the connection between history and food? It's, it's as I said, um, about particularly about black food ways mm. and slave cuisine in the care. Man, don't try to take away our saltfish. Mm. <laughs> we don't fight. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. We want our Aki. We want our plantains. You know, you have people who want their fufu. Mm. But a lot of that was engineered to solely be used as slave food, mm. not even slave food, slave diet, right? And even I fight that I, that word of diet, right? Mm. Once again, it's this restrictive, yeah. minimal concept. Food in particular has allowed me to see the joy that was radical, the creativity, the ingenuity of our ancestors because there's what is written in the archives mm. oh these poor people they have nothing to eat mm. but yet our people found ways to not only make a little go a long way mm. but make it taste good because for black people in west africa and mm. central africa i can't speak for the whole continent but i can certainly speak for west and central africans then and now food is sacred mm-hmm Food is not just for ingesting to survive. Food is sacred. Food is akin to sex. Mm. Food is akin to a religious experience. We know that when you've had something really good, mm. ooh, you start, you physically <laughs> cannot not move. Yeah, it's true. Right? We sing about it. Mm. We dance. We, it, it is that powerful for mm. us. And even though, you know, we think about all the horrors of slavery. Food is not connected. We don't immediately connect food as that mm. because we made something extraordinary mm. out of something so little. Mm. 
So that is how I, that, that was the start of it yeah. for me right. was being able to, to talk about, Oh, you like eating that? Yeah. From Jamaica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that slave food, right? Uh huh. We don't have to eat it. That's what's interesting to me. Yeah. We don't have to eat it. We choose to eat mm-hmm. it. And I realized that when <laughs> my mom would drive us to like the other end of Miami to go to a African Caribbean market to get specific yams and, you know, <laughs> things. And I was just like, Oh, can't we just go to McDonald's? There's a regular <laughs> grocery store down the street. Mom. <laughs> Why are we doing this? And her response wasn't, I am rebelling against the <laughs> oppression of the uh, American uh, empire. Her answer was very simple. This is who I am. Mm. And that was it. Mm. This is who I am that has been inherited from generations when they had even little, less than that, and still found ways to make it amazing. Today... We still eat, and here I am. I'm look. Get me my cornbread, mm-hmm. my cornmeal, my grits. Get me all of that. The plantains, <laughs> all of it. Saltfish. Mm. That was slave food. We have chosen not to let go of. Mm. And do you also kind of consider the um, the way that food was consumed as part of that history as well like I know speaking to West African culture specifically um that the way that food is consumed so we eat all together out of the same plate it's a very communal experience you eat with your family you talk of course um it's not something that you ever do in isolation if if you try to if you try to eat in isolation it's it's kind of weird right it's not something you necessarily do in front of the tv it's a it's a bonding experience um, of course, this is this is what created and bonded families and communities, mm. right? When we were specifically segregated from whites, when we weren't allowed to have their food. Mm. And what I found out in my research was the vast majority of the food that was grown to feed not just the enslaved, but the vast majority of people, including whites living on the island, mm. was done by by black folk, by enslaved folk. So they weren't just feeding themselves, Mm. supplying nourishment for themselves. They were growing foodstuffs Mm. from their gardens off the little time they had when they were spending Mm. at least 17 hours every day working. They still had time or found time to take care of their gardens that created a surplus that they would go and sell in markets mm. that would eventually make their ways onto the white tables of those white colonists. Mm. That's remarkable. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we, we, let me, this is what I'm talking about. Like we, our ancestors were so amazing. Mm. When they say the, where the origin, they're not lying. Mm. So, like, kind of going back to your um, more academic historical career, mm-hmm. your you, the University of Glasgow partnered with the University of West Indies, right, to host a four-week course on the history of slavery in the British Caribbean. What do you feel is the importance of collaborating between, I have quotation marks up, colonizer and colonized, specifically working with the West Indies, so... Um, what is it, what is the importance of sharing information between a former colonial state and the colonizer being the UK? Um, and how, how, how can you now do that 
without walking along the same lines of that kind of colonial exploit that it once would have been done with. Firstly, when Future Learn approached University of Glasgow, and then that came to me to it that I did that mm. right with with um, my partner Christine White, um, who is a, a a white woman, but she's an Africanist. So Future Learn came to us to say, why why don't you do this for us? And I said, sure, but we're going to include. Mm. University uh, of West Indies. Mm. That was my choice mm. to bring them in. They were not approached. Okay. So that's how you do it. Mm. They needed to be part. Yeah. And and provide their expertise. Because mm. we don't know it all. We don't. Mm. So I said, yes. So technically, yes, Glasgow was asked. But because I was the one doing this, I said, we're bringing them in mm. and they will share their expertise with the world because it is just as important that we are not and cannot stand as uh, the foremost authorities on everything mm. under the sun, mm. that the that we need to validate, we need to glo- have a global view of the contributions and value of learned people mm-hmm. at the University of West Indies and validate them on the same level as us. Mm-hmm. They are not less than us. We're not just throwing them a bone. They are just, their mm-hmm. contributions, their knowledge is just as important. Mm. Okay. And so in working with the University of West Indies, did you find that you had to um, actively work to not entertain any type of kind of colonial hierarchy that might have existed between the universities from either side because I think that it not goes for me. ways. That's good. Not for me. <laughs> um I was just like, do your thing. Mm-mm. What what would work best for you? Always trying to be as transparent as possible. I you know just talked to a number yeah. of colleagues that I had already met whose work is Incredible, but does not get the visibility mm. on this side of the ocean as it should. And I was like, no, your work is fat. Everybody need to know. Mm. And just having the opportunity to not just see it written, but to visually see this is a black educated mm. lecturer telling me about this history. Oh my God. Yeah. We need representation it always comes down to that right i didn't think it did Mm. growing up right because i told you i didn't see many i didn't see any black archaeologists Mm. when i decided and i didn't care but being irreverent is not something that falls easily for most people Mm. represent representation matters and i've come to understand i like seeing us Mm. in these spaces that technically or traditionally has not been Um, our place. And because we are now there, we are able to talk about more positive Mm. aspects of these histories that had never been talked about Mm. before. That's so important. I think that there's a, there's like an empowerment that comes when working with your skin folk that is not, it's, 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 you can't trade it for anything. No, but be forewarned, not all skin folk or kin Kin folk. folk. Say it again. (laughs) I had to learn that the hard way too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
right? Not everyone that was problematic, not all of them were white. Mm. There were, and I will say this also, there were plenty of white people were and are that are like, oh, tell us, what, mm. what do we, what are we messing up? Yeah. What do we need to, what do what I need to change? Mm. They want to know and they want to work on it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. But there was some foolishness that I've also had to experience in post-grad with people that should have been mentors, that they they said some stuff that you know if a white person had said, you'd be quick to HR, like, oh, oh no. Yeah. But because it was a black person, we had to, ah, oh yeah, oh well, you know, no, it's different, right? Abuse is abuse, whether it's from a family member or a stranger, mm-hmm. abuse is abuse. Mm-hmm. And so... Looking at kind of your trajectory over the past, of the course of your career and how far you've come. <laughs> it's a weird, it's a, it's a, mea- it, my, my path is very unusual yeah. compared with, with many of my colleagues, right? The traditional path, particularly in academia is, right, undergrad, postgrad, postdoc, um, in the U.S. tenure track position mm-hmm. or here immediately into, uh, the career that early career at a university into and then on and on and on. Mm. I did not. I, I <laughs> loops. <laughs> right. Because academia is hard. Mm. And then when you're a person of color, whoo, we, mm-hmm. they make it even harder. Academia by its nature is very abusive. It is an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. It's like domestic violence. And you keep thinking, if I just stick around a little longer, maybe then they'll treat me better. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a lot of that. There's also the problem of, there's, there in the, it's inherent in the nature of academia that passively there's a way that they treat you like, well, that was cute what you wrote. Can you do some more? You, you, you're not going to write another book yet? It's like this weird voice in your head that gets amplified. And, you know, as a person, as a a black woman in a traditionally white space, that imposter syndrome shows up a lot, Mm. a lot. But I had to learn, look, I'm not that good of an actress. I can't keep fooling. If I keep making contributions positively, if Mm -hmm. I haven't gotten fired, if I haven't been dismissed, then obviously I know what I'm talking about. I am not that good of an actor. If I was truly an imposter, Mm -hmm. I can't fool that many people for that many decades. So that means I need to accept, I I know what I'm doing. Mm. So how would you advise someone who isn't decades in the game starting off, but is feeling that imposter syndrome? Um, Find your people. Find your people. You cannot. There, There is, you must practice a kind of a multiplicity of care, mm. right? So there's self-care, which is also radical, but you also need to find your community mm. as well as a therapist, probably, <laughs> um, at all times, right? So you, you need professional mm. care. You need self-care. And you also need communal care because at different times you're going to need them mm. helping you out um, uh, because those voices show up at the weirdest times. Yeah. It never 
goes away for many of us. It never goes mm -hmm. away because as soon as you've achieved a certain level of success and then it's time for you, the challenge is the next level, mm -hmm. it starts all over again. Mm -hmm. So there's the professional care, there's the self-care, and then there's the communal care. Mm -hmm. And all of that is what, again, like we've, like our ancestor did, just get me to the next day. Yeah. Which will get me to the next day. Get me to the next day. Or that first publication. Mm -hmm. Then to the next. <laughs> then to the next, right? So yeah. always thinking about it as not thinking too far ahead, mm -hmm. but also thinking about it as let me just do what I need to do right now and then do what I need to do right now. <laughs> and then do and then you realize yeah. you've you've come really far. You look back behind you and you're like, damn. Yeah. At least that's what's worked for yeah. me. I can't say this is what is best for everyone. Mm. But my imposter syndrome also was impacted by the fact that I grew up as the child of immigrants who weren't educated. Mm -hmm. So I, and I could see that there was a difference in post-grad. There was a difference that my friends moved through the, the hallways with this, it wasn't arrogance, but it was a self-assured, yeah. I'm supposed to be here mm -hmm. because their parents all went to yeah. grad, you know, post-grad. Mm -hmm. I see it in my son. Mm. He carries himself in the way that I saw because his parents are educated, mm -hmm. right? My husband's educated. Yeah. I've got several mm. degrees. And we've always talked to him mm. and treated him like an intelligent person as he's growing. Mm -hmm. And he uses big words. And, you know, the other kids his age are like, huh? <laughs> right? So he moves the world in the way that I yeah. remember seeing my friends did. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel that mm -hmm. because I was like, I got to fake it till I make it. But I could I never felt like I could walk through the room like, well, you know, as Du Bois once said, <laughs> and I would be like, yeah, okay, so yeah, Du Bois did say that, but when you think about da -da 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 -da, mm -hmm. and I would do it that way, it sounded right, even if I didn't feel it. Feel it sound right, yeah. Even if I didn't feel it. Mm. So that is something I that imposter syndrome I at different levels, I still mm -hmm. have to um, fight. But what I remind myself is, girl, I ain't that good. <laughs> if I really didn't know what I was talking about, I couldn't have gotten this far. Yeah. There are enough people around to be like, she don't know what she's doing. Yeah. And would have been found out by now. I would have been found out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would have been found out. <laughs> I, they wouldn't keep asking me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there are professionals, people who are revered in their particular field mm. keep wanting to work with me mm -hmm. they're not idiots mm -hmm. so that's an insult not just to me but to them mm -hmm. to think i shouldn't be mm. here exactly if they know what they're talking if about they then why wouldn't you right exactly no one's paying them to call me up mm. and say let's do another show together or project mm -hmm. together exactly and so you know kind of dealing with that imposter syndrome is i guess part and parcel of any career as a black person specifically mm. as a black woman it's been like a really common theme in the few, past few episodes what practical steps do you recommend for someone who is where you were back when you first got your interest in history back when you were first a kid and realized that there's gaps in your knowledge and you need to fill them how would you advise them to kind of go along their journey to get to similar heights that you've reached you have to believe you should be there, mm. first and foremost. I have friends who fell off the path 
because they didn't believe they should be there. Because let me tell you, I can, there are plenty of people that will be lining up to be like, no, no, mm-hmm. you shouldn't. You're racist for trying to study that or <laughs> da, da 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 or you're not good enough, da da da, da right? You have to, I guess, fake it if need, need be, mm-hmm. believe you should be there. That's one. Um, another thing is find your people. Mm-hmm. You need your people to be able, you need, you yeah. need to have a cohort that you can trust to be vulnerable with mm. that are going to be like, you know, um, that are going to be your mentors, mm-hmm. right? On that are rooting for you, your cheerleaders. And I was lucky that I had them past and have them mm. present. That I was lucky that I did not fall into a group of people that were really jealous of each other. Yeah. So my flatmate, who now has, you know, she is world renowned, she was my flatmate. Mm. I celebrate every success of hers, and she does the same for me. Mm. Without me even knowing it, like she's, she's gotten, you know, you never know who's, who's in your corner Mm -hmm. speaking in the right ears. You never know. So what I found is all, I always give a hundred percent of whatever. Mm. Maybe it's not for everyone, but I'm very honest and I'll be like, look, I didn't understand this. I'm going to go learn about it. Mm. Or if you want to tell me what I should be doing better, I'm going to do it better. Let me learn about it. Mm. Um, I think some people have really respected that, that I haven't come off like, well, you know, as foremost authority, I'm fine with saying I did not know that yeah. or I don't know that, but let me find out. go and find out. Mm. Um, that has helped. But I think the first and the, the two main things is you got to believe you should be there. Mm. Maybe you don't know how you're supposed to get to the next place, but you got to believe you should be mm. there and you need your people. Find your people. Find your people. Mm. That is the reason why I am here now. Because the imposter voice does mm. get loud sometimes. Mm-hmm. The doubts yeah. often get louder than I should be here. Mm-hmm. And my people, you know, smack me around a little yeah. bit. It's a sad reality that we tend to value other people's opinions more than ourselves. So use it to your so advantage. use it to your advantage. Exactly. And so if you could give yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice to carry you through this journey that you've gone on, what would that advice be? And what age would you choose to advise? Honestly, I think I would advise right before I started post-grad. Mm. Um, <laughs> Prepare yourself. Yeah. I, for all the hardships that I went through before, I was so resilient, or not even resilient, irreverent. Like, you can't tell me nothing. I'm doing yeah. this. But as I got older, it got harder Mm -hmm. to stay that uh, irreverent. Mm -hmm. It got harder because when you step into the ivory tower and you have Professor So-and-so saying, you can't be the one to say, no, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it should be this way. It doesn't work that way. What I would definitely tell myself, if we're talking about academia, Mm -hmm. is understand that those who are in academia only understand that one path. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple ways to get to where you want to be. Yeah. It, I was lucky that I did not 
stop trying because, um, right. So yes, I did undergrad. I did postgrad. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did that. I even got a postdoc, but it didn't work out to what I wanted it to be. That whole thing fell apart. Mm-hmm. I wasn't where I didn't follow that simple track to getting that permanent job like so many of my colleagues mm-hmm. did. And I was scared. My community mm-hmm. said, girl, we knew in postgrad you were never going to take the same route to success as we did. So because education, first and foremost, was important to me, helping others learn, Mm. I found other ways to do it, Mm. which then drew the attention of people like, you know, famous historians and archaeologists because I was working with the public while I was, you know, scurrying away trying to do this tutorship Mm. thing in some ridiculous university and they're not paying me my worth. Mm. But that was sharpening my skills of how do I become a better educator and then started getting the attention of other people because I was able to not say, no, Mm. that's not what an academic does. Mm. I got to a place that nobody else can touch. I do TV. They fly me, they fly me to places like Germany to do documentaries. BBC TV, BBC Radio, mm. ITV. I do all of that. Most of my colleagues do not mm-hmm. because they did that very narrow. Academia yeah. has a very narrow path. But I would tell myself. Do not worry about those who only did one path. Mm-hmm. They don't know it. It's not the only way. Mm. They only know their way. Yeah. That would be the most important thing. Mm. There are many ways to get to what you want. And if, looking back on your career now, what what are the highlights that you would take out from your career and what are you looking forward to in the many, many years to come of your fruitful career? The highlights are all the the consultancies that I get to do. I'm working with, I mean, the, the, for the culture festival, girl, I literally, I did that. I did that. (laughs) I was brushing the dirt. I could not believe that I, that I am an artistic curator for that festival. Mm. I can't wait for next year when we, when we bring it back in its full, full form, getting to be flown uh, uh, you know, across the world to do TV and all this stuff, mm. right? So, <laughs> another highlight: flown first class to New York City, first class, to give a one-hour talk on the uh, social history and science of chili peppers, <laughs> and got paid in the thousands. I don't think you can write a path to like your career in particular. That is incredible. Though, you know, I I can't be here. (laughs) I'm sorry. I got to fly to, they're flying me to New Orleans. I got to do this food thing. And they're taking me to all these fancy restaurants and whatnot. Cause it's, you know, it's food culture and history and Mm. it is what I do. And if they have to, they have to feed me really great food and drink. Yeah. And put me up in a nice hotel Mm. and pay for me to do it. So it's funny, sometimes my colleagues are like, uh, I'm thinking about doing this lecture. I was asked to do this. And I said, well, you know, how much are they paying you? And they're like, pay? And I was like, you don't you, you don't get paid? And they're like, you get paid? And I'm like, 
minimum thousand. That's that's me being cheap. Mm. And they're like, what? Mm. I was thinking maybe a couple hundred or something. I was like, well, that's do you, you do you? you. Do you but yeah, I wow. I have a very colorful career mm. of not just being a lecturer, but you know, I I I'm working. I can't go into detail because I signed an NDA, but I I'm working with a TV production company on a script. Mm. So you did become a screenwriter after all. Well, I'm, tr- <laughs> I'm warming my my way in. Show it to your parents and be like, I told you. Like, <laughs> like yeah. But you know, working with with people who write scripts for mm. potential TV shows mm. that. If this show gets greenlit, you won't be able to tell me nothing then. I'll be like, well, you know, you know, you, you like Bridgerton? Wait till you see this. Wait till you see this. Getting those kinds of opportunities mm. that traditionally is not what most academics do. Yeah. So it took me a long time to be secure in maybe I don't have that fancy professorship yet. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I never will. But I'm on TV. I'm being flown here and there. I'm doing all these things. And I have the respect yeah. of of people, of of academics, mm. while still getting to stay true to me at the same time. Wow. Wow. What an inspiring career and journey you've led. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so inspired by your story. Go get yours, girl. Go get yours. <laughs> we all, oh, I think that this, your journey and your your advice and your story is going to inspire a lot of the listeners. I know I've been inspired by it. Um, and we're really grateful for you joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much, Dr. Peggy Brunash. It's been an incredible conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to the How Did I Get Here podcast. Our episodes are released on the third Wednesday of each month. So make sure to tune in and don't forget to follow us at BCA Heritage on all social media platforms for information on what we have on. If you liked our introduction and want to learn more, come visit our archives. Our reading room is open Wednesday to Friday and the first Saturday of every month. Check out the bottom of our website for the opening times and pay us a visit here in Brixton. And remember, culture is resilience. Diversity is resilience. Keep going and don't stop until you get there.